Well, welcome everybody to season three of the Brothers Grimm podcast. And guess what? We're going 80s. That's right. Sorry, it's been so long. That's the decade I was born in. That's the decade I was born in, but I'm not an 80s baby. We won't talk about what decade I was born in. 90s. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. I, I can't be an 80s baby. I'm, I was born in 88, so I'm, I'm technically more of a 90s baby than I am an 80s baby. So I, yeah. I, don't, I don't really... But you're not 89, you know, like... No, I'm 88. <laughs> right. So, but it's still okay. I mean, I, I guess I can, I can still, like, journey and it be Look, okay, right? Some of these stories are going to span probably into the 90s a little bit. Some of these stories will go all the way back to the 40s. Ooh. But our overarching theme is going to be around the 80s and things that happened mainly in the 80s. That's right. Every case, every mystery, the primary setting will be sometime in the decade of the 80s. Probably one of the best decades for horror films. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So many came out. I mean, the, the 80s are the decades where a lot of your cult classic mm-hmm. slasher movies uh, really kind of began to take shape. They may not have started in the 80s, but um, they started close enough to. And Their sequels definitely kept going into the 80s, that's absolutely. for sure. Yeah. I'm curious, what do y'all think actually started that? Like, why so many horror films and slasher films came out during the 80s? I guess, like, what's your take on it? I don't have a right answer. I'm just curious. I don't know. I mean, it could have been that the 60s and 70s were so, you know, hippie-driven, so anti-war. Maybe it was harbored angst, and you know, I don't know. I think the 80s had a lot of conspiracy behind it. There was a lot of, uh, you know, we were coming close to the end of the Cold War, people's tensions were high i think in in horror in and of itself has always been an escape from what's been going on and for the 60s and 70s minus a a couple relatively big wars you know there really wasn't much going on there's a lot of social a lot of social uh cultural things that were changing and shifting the culture a lot of movements that were happening during the 60s and 70s but the 80s came and it was like we got serial killers we got government conspiracies we got aliens we got Men in Black. I mean, the the list of of freaky phenomena just just continues to build, and I think that horror is usually uh, usually happens during a time of uh, of, of strife and, and cultural anxiety. And I think just the decade itself is is a very an- anxious decade. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think like like what you were saying with um, just the kind of angst and like the grunge that were that was taking place also reflects itself in the music during that time well yeah i mean the 80s are uh you know the 70s and the 60s were very free time and the 80s saw really the explosion of uh the urban drug scene you Mm. know the continued sprawl into suburbia and so if you look at all the horror movies all the slasher movies they didn't happen in the city they happened in the suburbs you know, to where people began to feel safe. And I think that, I think that you're seeing the contrast there between what was going on in the city, you know, was, was coming to the burbs. Interesting. Well, we want to hear from y'all. What's, what's your take? Why, why do you think the eighties was such a prolific time for horror, for mysteries, for, for murders and for unsolved mysteries? Well, I guess, I guess another thing would be the show unsolved mysteries. I mean, it pretty much, you know, propagated the entire interest in unsolved cases. Yep. 
in between the 80s and the 90s, man, that got me through many a many a sick day. Um, you know, it, it, Robert Stack is is the voice of Robert mind. Stack just just swaying us to swooning us to sleep. Not that the Netflix you know revival of it is not great and all. Oh, I love it. It's but it's different. You know, the 80s one, the original one, just has a campy feel. Now looking back at it, but when you the, you know during when it was new. It scared the crap out of me. Yeah, I don't know, man. I, I watch it now, and even even now, the original Unsolved Mysteries is still so creepy. And it's probably because it has that retro vibe, so it already feels really analog and really hands-on and really gritty, and like Brian said, really grungy. That just kind of plays into the the fear factor of this a little bit. If it's too clean, too pristine, it kind of takes a little bit of the edge off. But when it's gritty and nasty and dirty, I think it's scarier. Yep, I would agree. I would agree. Well, everyone, thank you for so much for hanging with us for for now. This is our third season. Uh, we're really excited. We have a slew of stories for you. I know that that Jeremy and Brian have have done their research, and we have a lot of good, uh, exciting, exciting stories to share. Yep, with this season. Our- with the season and the idea of this, it took us a little longer to find some stories and get stuff on paper and really make it as good as we want. We want our production value to be very high and not just throw something together. So. Yeah, plus, you know, being focused on the 80s, it's difficult to find things that were not just done to death, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you can't do the Night Stalker because, you know, Netflix's documentary was exquisite on it. Yeah. And- well, the 80s was huge with serial killers as well. Absolutely. But that takes a lot of our, a lot of our ideas, because we can't just do those. Yeah. Not know? only that, but serial killers, if if they're known, then it's already solved. So the whole unsolved mystery side of of this would just be like, oh, it's not exciting. We're we're looking for unsolved true crime, paranormal happenings, and paranormal happenings. That's a big thing in the eighties as a well. Plenty. There is a there, plenty yep. of the paranormal. Happening. A lot of the haunted houses and stuff really mm-hmm. started to become popular mm-hmm. in the eighties. So we have mm-hmm. some good stuff mm-hmm. coming this year. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. Uh, there's a lot of good content coming, and I think you guys are going to enjoy uh, season three of the Brothers Grimm retro style. I did, before we dive into the first story, I do want to ask Jeremy. You're like a, a really big like retro nerd nostalgic nerd to the 80s why why is that i mean you were born in 84 so you're still you're still kind of a baby in the 80s it's not like you lived through the through it as a as you know as a teenager why do you like the 80s so much i don't know man there's just something about the decade i mean i love the music i love the movies i love um you know it's funny the fashion is starting to come back around um gen z thinks that they're original with their fashion sense, but in reality, they're just rehashing the late 80s and early 90s. But that's really, like, how it's been. Like, even, you know, five, six years ago, kind of the late 50s, 60s style was coming back. The really nice dress, um, fitted clothes, that sort of thing. But I don't know what I don't know what it is about the 80s. It, this is going to be probably counterintuitive, but um, originality. Um, if you listen to the music of the 80s, it was nothing like that happened before. It was mm-hmm. nothing you know it, the sounds that came out of the '80s, the music, the video games. It was a, it was the synthesizer. It was yeah, it was yep. the technology. It was just kind of coming into its own. I mean, you, you had Jobs and Wozniak that were building, you know, the Apple II in the '80s, and you know, Bill Gates working. And so it's just this explosion of uh, 
creativity and uh and I love the decade because of that and it even extended into the nineties. Well, technology um, became a huge thing during that time. Like started eighties into the nineties, it really blew up. But absolutely. I mean if you didn't have an NES, then what were you doing with your life? <laughs> Some would say if you didn't have a uh an Apple an Apple two, you were not the cool kid. I guess that's that's still true today, but I mean I remember playing uh, Oregon Trail, the original on the Apple II. So mm-hmm. I'm dating myself. That's fine. But, yeah. you know, I just, I, you asked me why I, I love the 80s. I, there's just an unquantifiable, I don't know, something about the 80s that just draws me to it and I love it. And it's the best music. Yep. And I love the synth, uh, the synthesizer. So, like the sawtooth sound, the really like Moog style stuff. Like that's, I think that's my uh, my go-to style, my favorite one of my favorite styles. I'm a huge Journey fan. I know they like they started in in the 70s, kind of really got popular into the 80s. But I love Journey. I love all that classic rock, all that classic arena style rock as well that that really started in the 80s. Well, and if you look at some of the more prolific and uh, and uh, popular shows and movies that have come along, and even in the last decade, uh, they have been nostalgic throwbacks to the 80s you know stranger things is a perfect example on netflix i mean it it touches every um yummy 80s trope <laughs> and the, but whether it's the music or the clothes or the fact that you could stay out until the street light comes on or you know you rode your bike everywhere groups of of kids on bicycles it's like the the number one 80s trope yeah absolutely what well, is what is what what is your favorite maybe topic that you're looking to discover this year for the eighties. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge film nerd. So, you know, I, I am for, I, I you're going to hear stories from me that probably center more around, um, you know, grim story behind, you know? And so, because there's just so many, whether it's creepy stuff that happened on a movie set or things that happened to the cast afterwards or stories that inspired the movies or whatever, that's probably going to be my focus because I love nostalgia. And so that's where I'm going to drift probably more often than not. Um, for me, I think it's going to revolve more around, I'm going to call this analog, but very like more basic type crimes, if, if that makes sense. Just kind of like people more hands-off type crimes and just very simple to the point of what, of how they actually committed these crimes or these murders or whatever. So it's going to be a little less like somebody was gunned down or um, there'll be some paranormal in there as well, just because I, I like paranormal stuff. Brian wants to feel the dri- the blood dripping from his hands. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about all that, but um, it's definitely going to be more like, I don't know. You're just going to have to wait and see. He wants to feel the food coloring and corn syrup. That's what he wants to feel. <laughs> well, y'all know me. I, I lean into the paranormal. That's my that's my favorite. I love ghost stories. I love haunted houses. I love cryptids. I love everything that has to do with paranormal. I'm going to probably lean in more into the, the government conspiracy side of it, though. There's a lot of unsolved mysteries around the government, around conspiracies. UFOs became a really hot hot take in the 80s. Men in Black became a really hot take in the 80s. I love that you're 
you like that because I saw a lot of stuff about that. Oh, yeah. It's kind of cool. Oh, yeah. And it, and it all kind of leans into the paranormal side of the 80s. So if you guys, one morning, woke up with a killer headache, popped a couple Tylenol, and then you were dead 30 minutes later, what, what is that? What, how does that make you feel? I'd be very upset. I do wake up with headaches <laughs> quite often, though, so I do. I, 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 You're frequent I 80% with relate to this story yeah. so far. I guess I wouldn't feel anything because I wouldn't have a headache anymore. Yes, that is true. It, it definitely makes me weird. I mean, every time I take a Tylenol or like a Motrin or anything like that, I do, I'm always a little weary about like, is this, is this the time? Is this the time this is going to kill me? I'm going to take this medicine? Yeah. 6.30 a.m., Mary Kellerman, a 12-year-old from Schomburg, wakes up feeling sick. Her parents keep her home from school, and she takes some Tylenol. Dennis Kellerman, Mary's father, I heard her go into the bathroom, I heard the door close, then I heard something drop. I went to the bathroom door, I called Mary, are you okay? There was no answer. I called again, Mary, are you okay? There was still no answer. So I opened the bathroom door, and my little girl was on the floor unconscious. She was still in her pajamas. 9.56 a.m., Mary Kellerman is pronounced dead at Alexian Brothers Medical Center in Elk Grove Village. 12 p.m. noon, Adam Jonas, a 27-year-old postal worker in Arlington Heights, had taken a sick day. Also took Tylenol. See, this is why I take ibuprofen. Okay. Mm-hmm. Tylenol, Tylenol is that bad magic. That's right, the voodoo magic. 3.45 p.m., Mary Lynn Rayner, 27, is at home in Winfield. She had recently given birth to her fourth child. Not feeling well, she takes some Tylenol and collapses. According to the Crime Museum, many more victims in the surrounding areas suffered the same fate, and it did not take long for the link between the deaths and Tylenol to be discovered by the authorities. This strange string of deaths revealed that Tylenol capsules had been laced with potassium cyanide. Now, is this brand name Tylenol or off-brand acetaminophen? No, brand name Tylenol. Okay. Made by Johnson & Johnson. Can't trust that Johnson & Johnson. The bottles that had been tampered with all came from different factories, yet the victims were all within the Chicago area. This meant that the tampering had not occurred at the production level, but rather within the stores themselves. Not the golden ticket that you really want to find in your bottle of Tylenol, is it? No, unfortunately it isn't. Not at all. So wait, so you're telling me that somebody, so somebody actually went in and, okay, what year was this? This was 1982. Okay, now I don't really know my, my um, you know, pill history very well. Was, did they, um, did over-the-counter drugs come with, um, a protective seal on them? Not at this point yet. Oh, and did they have the child protect like the... I don't believe so. I think it was just a standard cap. As the investigation began, Johnson & Johnson received several letters from James William Lewis claiming that he was the one that tampered with the capsules and demanding $1 million to stop because he and his wife lived in New York at the time he had no ties to Chicago police did not find much credible evidence to suggest that Lewis was actually the culprit. He was, however, arrested for extortion and served 13 years in prison, on top of an additional multi-year sentence for unrelated crimes. What? 
Okay, I'm sorry. Um, my man calls Johnson and Johnson, admits to it, right? And the police is like, I don't think it's him. Yep. Interesting. That sounds like a failure at the cop level. Right. Like, but you you just had a guy confess. Yeah. That's better than circumstantial evidence. You would think. <laughs> Other suspects arose, but police were not able to tie any of them to the Tylenol murders. In early. 1983, at the FBI's request, Chicago Tribune columnist Bob Green published the address and gave location of the first and youngest victim, Mary Kellerman. The story written with the Kellerman's family's consent was proposed by FBI criminals analyst John Douglas on the theory that the perpetrator might visit the house or grave sites if he were made aware of their locations. Both sites were kept under 24-hour surveillance for several months but the killer did not surface. I mean, it makes sense. Most most killers want to revisit the scene of the crime. They want to watch the cops squirm and squiggle and see their handiwork. Do they though? Absolutely. I feel like I feel like so many killers just make terrible decisions. In fact, I think it was this. I think it was maybe Mindhunter or another series that talked about how the majority of tips that come in for serial killers come from the serial killers themselves. I believe that. They're narcissistic. They they want praise. But I will say there are more deaths that occurred, not just those three. There are more that occurred. I just didn't list them all. About how many murders were there through the Tylenol? I think there was almost 12-ish. It was like an entire 24 hours worth of time that they found that people who had taken this Tylenol had died. Wow. So at that at that 24-hour mark, Johnson Johnson said, hey, let's remove all of these Tylenol pills from the shelves and don't sell anymore. Do they recall all of Chicago or like... I think it was just all like of that Nationwide area. recall? I think it was all of Chicago because it was only isolated to there. Mm. The wise move. In early January 2009, so many years in the future, Illinois' authorities renewed the investigation. Federal agents searched the home of Lewis in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and seized a number of items in Chicago. An FBI spokesperson declined to comment but said, we'll have something to release later, possibly. Law enforcement officials have received a number of tips related to the case coinciding with its anniversary. In a written statement, the FBI explained. So, 20 years later, they wisened up and decided, maybe the guy that admitted to the crime is actually the one that did it. Yeah, they probably, there was probably a new FBI agent coming in there in unsolved crimes and reopened the case. And That's said, unbelievable. Yeah. This could have been solved 20 years ago. Right. And they still don't know that it was him. But So they, had, they got some new evidence and they decided not to share it. Right, not yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but what can they hope to find 27 years in the future? I don't know, maybe, maybe something in James Lewis's house um, that kind of point, maybe some of the potassium cyanide was there. I don't know. I mean, they do tend to keep souvenirs, definitely. My man still has a, a bottle of, that says, uh, right. killer Tylenol, don't, oh, don't use. That's right. James. That's right. <laughs> a note to myself. <laughs> yep. On May 19th, 2011, so two years later, the FBI re-questioned DNA samples from Unabomber Ted Kaczynski in connection to the Tylenol murder. Kaczynski denied having ever possessed potassium cyanide, 
The first four Unabomber crimes happened in Chicago in its suburbs from 1978 to 1980. And Kaczynski's parents had a suburban Chicago home in 1982 where he stayed occasionally. So the FBI is trying to tie it to the Unabomber. Interesting, okay. It's clean. It's too clean. It doesn't seem like his M.O. No. At all. No, plus you have a guy who admitted it. I'm going to stay on that train for a long time. Y'all aren't going to push me off of it. Well, and most 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 guys like the Unabomber, the Zodiac, I mean, they, they have one M.O. Like, like you know, they the Unabomber bombed things. Like, you know, the Zodiac Killer killed people, like, with his hands. The Night Stalker killed people with his hands. Like, they don't just change... And they don't change how they do it. They well, don't change their victim. Usually not successful ones. Well, yeah. well and, and the Unabomber at this time was already caught, right? Right. So so the guy, he's already caught. He's already he's already gone to jail. He, he's already saying, nah, that, that wasn't me. I, I bombed people. I, I didn't do that. Like, what, what's it going to hurt him? He, he's not right. going to confess to anything. Mm-hmm. Even if he did do it, which I don't believe he did. Like, you got a, you got a serial killer that's telling you, no, that's, that's not me. Well, right. that what y'all just told me is the serial killers like the fame. So mm-hmm. if he did do it, he'd be like, I'm already caught. Yeah, that was me. I did that. Now, I will say during the trial of John or of James Lewis, attorneys claim that he intended only to focus on the intention of the authorities on his wife's former employer, WCBV Channel 5 of Boston. So so again, Lewis <laughs> From New York, his wife worked in Boston for a time, and the murders happened in Chicago. This, this, this couple is bouncing all over the place. I don't understand why the authorities suck right now. This is unbelievable. You know, their ability to pin it on somebody uh, would rest solely on, you know, fingerprint matching, witness statements, confession, you know, yep. the, the idea of. Tying it to somebody's DNAs. And James Lewis continues to say, hey, I actually didn't do this. I was just trying to like, get back at my wife's ex-boss. There was a second man, Roger Arnold, was identified, investigated, and clear of the killings. He had a nervous breakdown to the media's attention, which he blamed on Marty Sinclair, a bar owner in the summer of 1983. Arnold shot and killed John Stanisha, a computer consultant and father of three, who was leaving a bar with multiple friends, whom he mistook for Sinclair. Arnold was convicted of killing in January 1984 and served 15 years of his 30-year sentence for second-degree murder, saying in 1996 from prison, I killed a man, a perfectly innocent man. I had choices. I have walked away. He died in June 2008. There was also a woman, Lori Dan, who poisoned and shot a number of people on May 1988 rampage in and around Winnetka, Illinois, who was briefly considered as a suspect, but no direct connection was found. In the aftermath of all of these deaths, hundreds of copycat attacks involving Tylenol and other over-the-counter medications and other products also took place around the United States immediately following the Chicago death. So at what point did uh, pill manufacturers decide, we should probably put, should probably put some seals on these, on these bottles? Did that happen in the 80s? I'm assuming that's a, a byproduct of this, of this case. Yeah, so Johnson Johnson's response received positive coverage for its handling of the crisis. For example, um, the article in the Washington Post said Johnson & Johnson has effectively demonstrated how major businesses ought to handle a disaster. In 1982, 
After the incident, the pharmaceutical food and consumer product industries got together and developed a tamper-resistant packaging, such as induction seals, and improved quality control methods. Moreover, product tampering was made a federal crime. I would hope so. Yeah. Well, for everybody who takes pills, you could thank the uh, Tylenol murderer for uh, that, little, that little bit that says, if this, is, if this seal is broken, do not use. Yep. And it's crazy. Three more deaths occurred in 1986 from tampered gelatin capsules. A woman died in Yonkers, New York, after ingesting extra-strength Tylenol capsules laced with cyanide. I'm just, I'm just learning to not take Tylenol. Yeah, but what it, what it sounds to me is there is a, let's call him Tylenol serial killer, because I believe that this is the same person. Oh, you think the same person did it again? Is what I think. Interesting. It's like, yeah, okay, this probably tipped off a lot of people. It's like, hey, this is a qu- good way to kill somebody. I think it was Lewis. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it was him. I think he was finding a cr- or, a, you know, an opportunity and took it trying to. Get a million dollars. It wouldn't be the first time in history that somebody has taken credit for somebody else's work. I guess that's true. I mean, they've never catched that. I mean, there's a lot of serial killers that they've never caught. A lot of murders. High-profile ones. These are one of those cases that really bother me. I feel like, again, we have, there's so much there. Yeah, y'all have sat with us now through several seasons of this show. You know what bothers me at this point. I hate cases where there's, there's evidence we got we got some confessions, and still, now what? What are we? Thirty years later now? Yeah. Nothing. Nothing solved. It's, it happened again. Nothing solved. Ugh. I hate cases like this. Yep. <laughs> so, additionally, with once this all happened, um, this incident prompted the pharmaceutical industries to move away from the capsules, which easily contaminate as a foreign substance, could be placed inside without obvious signs of tampering. Within the year, the FDA introduced more stringent regulation to avoid product tampering. This led to the eventual replacement of the capsule with a solid caplet, a tablet made in the shape of the capsule as a drug delivering form and with the addition of tamper-evident safety seals to bottles of many sorts. So before anybody listening takes some Tylenol, make sure one, it's within the last couple of years. And two, that it isn't a capsule, it is a caplet. That's right. If you have Tylenol from the 80s, I recommend you don't take that. Yep. Just switch to Motrin or Ibuprofen. It's better anyways. Or yoga or oh, meditation. Or yoga, yeah. <laughs> let's, maybe let's get away from pills. This episode was written by Brian McIntyre with discussion from Jeremy Thompson and Joey Thompson and was recorded at Starscream Studio. Grayson over at Starscream is an incredible producer and engineer, so be sure to visit starscreamstudio.com for all your tracking and recording needs. Additional audio support by Will Compton and original music composed by Nick McClure. Be sure to subscribe, and when you do, drop a line in the comments and say hi. We want to hear your grim stories, too. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.